Hey everybody, this is Roland Denzel and Galena Denzel with the Eat Well, Move Well podcast, episode number eight. Hi everybody. Um, welcome back, or should I say, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, welcome back to us, I guess. It's been a while since we've done our last podcast, number seven. Uh, we had a lot of stuff going on in between podcasts, and uh, but as a result, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, we have been busy. Been very busy, way. yeah. We've... Uh, We've been writing, so we've got another, uh, a, uh, a more fleshed out version of the 30 Days of Real Food coming out uh, soon. It's going to be uh, out on Kindle and, uh, and a hard copy, so you'll be available through Amazon. And since then, we, uh, since we talked last on the podcast, we um, had a book promotion. So we promoted both of the books that we have out on Amazon now, and the things did really well. And hopefully, I mean, the Amazon says that tons of people downloaded it. Tons of people bought uh, the No Time to Workout workout. We'd love to get some feedback, and we really love, love, love if you would uh, take a minute and go out to Amazon and uh, do some reviews. We have a lot of reviews on uh, Man on Top, but so far we don't have any reviews on the No Time to Workout workout. But it is a workout program. So uh, it does take a while to go through it and to test it out. But if you feel like it's a good program, we'd love to, to get some reviews out there. I'm going to put a link in the, in the show notes just so it's, uh, it's easy to find. And um, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And let's just jump in. Absolutely. There's a couple of things we want to talk about today. And we're going to start with the first one that's very fresh in our minds. Um, our friend Nick, just yesterday, posted... A picture on Facebook, um, and I'm sure that you've seen a lot of these pictures floating around the internet, where there's two pictures of two seemingly beautiful women next to each other. There's no seemingly about it. Okay, there's two gorgeous <laughs> women um, right next to each other, and one of them is a model, like a fashion model, say a Victoria's Secret model. And the other one is a fitness model. And so, in this case, what the picture said was one said, just diet. That was on top of the Victoria's Secret model. And on top of the fitness model, it said diet and exercise. Which one do you prefer? And so, this picture, like many others, um, is a part of a cultural trend amongst fitness professionals, whether they are trainers or they're nutritionists or they're just people in the fitness industry. And fitness enthusiasts, like people yeah. who, are re who have been in, into their own fitness for a couple of years. And, and where in, in, in recent years, there's been this tendency where you have to exercise. You can't just diet to look good. And that's, and that's wonderful. We support that 100%. We, we, we do support exercise. Both for health and for, for looks you will usually look better and have better results if you both eat well and exercise versus just eat well or well, diet. But here the emphasis was more like, look, one of them is skinny, the other one is muscular and lean, so this is way better. And this is like where... like an eight-pack in this case. Yeah, in a groin vein. <laughs> um, oh, and and the, Sorry, couldn't, couldn't help myself. So this is where we disagree. Um... Whether we look at models where it's fitness models or catwalk models, we are... And some people don't know the difference between a fitness model. A fitness model is more than what it sounds like. If you're new to the fitness, this whole fitness business, um, a fitness model is like a, almost like a bodybuilder. But smaller. A female bodybuilder, yes, but, but smaller. But way smaller. Less muscular. There's, it goes... Victoria's Secret model, like swimsuit model, that kind of stuff on one side. The other side, it's like, uh, they call them bikini, bikini models, which is like uh, the entry level of like bodybuilding. And they're softer and they are not all, they don't have groin veins, <laughs> anything like that. Then the next step up is fitness model, which is more, they've got, you know, biceps and shoulders and um, muscular quads and glutes and then, and you see some veins. And then the next step up is bodybuilder. And bodybuilder is where, um, 
they're really jacked. These they look women, like, these they look women like are dudes. really jacked. Yeah. <laughs> and um, some of them are very beautiful, but they've got big muscles and very little body fat. Yeah. So in, in recent years, back to our topic, mm-hmm. and thank you for clarifying this, because I, I never think that people don't know what a fitness model is, but maybe there's people who don't if they're not in the industry. In recent years, there's been this promoting of the image of women who are more muscular and very lean as being better, whatever better means, better in, in my air quotation marks here that you can't see behind the microphone, than just your regular Victoria's Secret model or you know any other thin catwalk model. And we we highly disagree here. And we, we sat down and we wrote down the things that define a model culturally um, and the things that define a fitness model in the, in the fitness culture. So a model, we expect that she eats very little. In the case of the models that I have trained, um, I've had conversations like, did you have eggs? Yes, I did. When? Last Wednesday. Or what did you have today? Oh, I had a whole cappuccino. And that's like a normal, <laughs> that's like a normal conversation. They, they don't think that that's abnormal. This is how little these women eat. So there's a, there's hunger, there's deprivation. Um, somebody like that usually has the body type that supposes that they would be, um, it would be easier for them to achieve that specific look that modeling agencies look for. They usually have a lot of makeup and they're heavily airbrushed on, uh, during, after photo shoots and in magazines. Then they often have to be on a diet before a show, especially these, um. Yeah, they don't look like this all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of them. They don't look like they're not that skinny all the time. So they have to make themselves that skinny. And if you look at their life as a whole, there's probably a big disruption in social life. Like how active can you be with your family and with your friends if, you know, if you're not enjoying a lot of these things that they do or you have to exercise a lot because a lot of these models also exercise. They don't just sit around eating nothing. They, they move a lot. Well, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's probably a little bit misleading about some of these, these pictures, these comparison pictures is that they probably both exercise, but obviously it's a different type of exercise because mm-hmm. The one, the Victoria's Secret style model may do a lot of exercise, but it may be treadmill, elliptical. Or lighter weights. Yeah. could be like the Tracy Anderson style. Mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow style. Yeah. And I don't want to, I mean, at some point I'm going to veer off, not off topic, but I'm going to go off on this little tangent. So I don't know if this is a good time because Gwyneth Paltrow reminded me. So, because I think this started a couple years ago with people saying, oh, look, Gwyneth Paltrow or people like that are too skinny, which I agree. She's her she looks too skinny or has at many times looked too skinny. And the type of and Gwyneth Paltrow does exercise, but she exercises and makes poor choices and eats too little and too much of the wrong foods. Hence she has osteoporosis. Yes. But fitness model, on the other hand, and back a couple years ago, you didn't have to go to this ex- this extreme. It was just they chose women that obviously worked out. So women that might be on the cover of Women's Health magazine, who do have muscles often, um, but they're not usually ripped or have groin veins. Well, over time, the last couple of years, it's shifted the opposite direction. So now people who are Victoria's Secret models are not are too skinny in people's minds and those other people are not jacked enough. So now you have to, you know, you, you shifted it over a couple of categories. Well, if, if you look at a fitness model, what is, what is the difference? I don't see a lot of difference in, yes, there's a difference in look, difference in looks, but how you get there is not necessarily healthier because you still have to diet. You still have to deprive yourself. You still have to dehyde yourself before these um, shows and, and modeling jobs. You still have a disruption in social life. And while, you know, a, a regular catwalk model, we can say, well, maybe they smoke and they drink too much coffee. Maybe they do drugs. Maybe they do alcohol. Then fitness models oftentimes will use stimulants and they'll overexercise and they'll maybe do steroids. So how is one model over the other healthier and how is one thing over the other better to aim at? Yeah, yeah, and and I, that's it's not that's been on my mind a lot. Where we allow yourself ourselves to be subconsciously shaped by culture, yeah. 
Yes. Whether it's something that floats on our Facebook wall or it's something that floats on TV screen, it shapes us subconsciously. So it's very possible that while you are no longer after the Victoria's Secret or, you know, in older years, Kate Moss look, which everybody liked, now you may be shifting culturally towards another look that may be um, similarly unattainable, and that is the, the fitness model look. And one thing that Roland and I always tell our clients in coaching is never, ever compare yourself to somebody else. If you do that, it is very probable that you may be disappointed if you have put the bar too high with somebody who looks seemingly perfect in your eyes. Or if you constantly compare yourself to somebody who's way heavier than you or how way, way less talented than you, then the bar is too low. So you can't be comparing yourself to anybody else but you and what your potentials are and what your goals are, what your dreams are. So say that at any given point we went to the beach. We're talking about that today. There's probably 10, 16-year-old girls that we can just scoop up and take to a modeling gig and half of them are going to go. And they're going to get chosen because they have the long legs, they have the nice skin, they're 16, you know, <laughs> like whatever the reasons are, they're going to get chosen because they have that specific look. At the same time, at any given point, if we go to Venice Beach or any of these places where there's a lot of people who work out, maybe we can, you know, grab a couple of women in their rollerblades, put them on a little bit of a diet and throw them in a, in a fitness competition. So there's these body types that are prevailing both in fitness modeling and in modeling modeling. And there's specific psychological traits um, that accompany those people who are able to do these diets and are able to do these strict workout programs. And oftentimes that's not you. Well, I mean, I think that it's, it's important to note that there are some misconceptions about what is healthy exercise. And there's a wide variety of exercise styles that we can all follow and be healthy. And I don't know where I mean, there, I mean exercise is a is, is like a supplement. Exercise that we do today is like a supplement for the, the hard work that we used to do in the past. But it's necessary. But throughout history, not everyone was super strong and lifted weights and had big biceps. This is like a cultural thing that we, uh, to some degree, appreciate now in men, and we're starting to appreciate more in women. And there's really nothing wrong with big muscles or being super strong. But is it normal or necessary? What is strong enough? I mean, there are women out there who can deadlift like 315 pounds. That's the, you know, three of the really big weights on each side of the of the barbell. That's way stronger than you need to be. I mean, they're Unless Great you're in a them. specific sport that yeah. requires that. And there are men out there that can deadlift, you know, 500 pounds. That's way stronger than they need to be. Great that they can do it. And they may see some sort of benefits down the road. Being that strong gives you some benefits to avoid osteoporosis and things like that. But you're not going <laughs> to... Being, being able to deadlift 500 pounds is not going to make you give you less osteoporosis than the guy who can deadlift 315 pounds. Or the guy who can actually stand properly and walk around. Correct. And walking is like the other extreme. I mean, that's an important type of exercise that we don't do enough. Being able to run is an important type of exercise that we, you know, that many people don't do enough or some people do too much. There's all sorts of different exercise, but because one person chooses, ah, it's just, it's, well, be, I, I think where you're going with this is just because one person chooses to show off their work and their showing off of their work is considered culturally acceptable and appreciated doesn't mean that your work is valued less or it's less valuable for you. So where I don't want people to get lost in this world of multiple choices that we have to make every day is... I don't want people to feel like they're not doing the right thing 
if they're moving enough and if they're in a in a well-designed movement program where they don't look like that chick that has, you know, 8% body fat walking down the the fitness modeling aisle. So don't feel like whatever you're doing is not giving you results because your results don't look like something that is perceived as fit or beautiful by a community of people that could very well not be you. I guess one of my points is that we both have worked with people, let's take women in this case, who do the right resistance exercise to the right level and they they don't have big muscles. So they could be, you know, a bikini model or, or something like that. They could look great on the beach, but you can barely tell that they, you know, that they're in there doing chin-ups or pull-ups and push-ups or squats. You can't really tell. This is the look that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they wish they could have bigger muscles, and it's hard for them to gain them. That could be that Victoria's Secret model. So we don't know just because she looks that certain way, has a certain level of body fat, that she doesn't exercise, much less that she doesn't lift weights. Well, and I've worked with a number of number of women with um, eating disorders, and you know some of these girls start so low, like 75, 80 pounds. You know, some of them start really light. So by the time they're at their biggest, healthiest, most wonderful weight, they still look smaller than most people. And they have a hard time gaining muscle and they have a hard time being defined because they've, you know, spent 10, 15, 20 years of their lives abusing themselves. So at that moment at which you're saying, oh, this woman looks way too skinny, she could be at her healthiest weight. So we never know. I was talking to somebody recently who said they went to a weight loss clinic and they wanted to sign up and and start their program. But when they went in, all the receptionists were overweight. So he left. And I said, well, how do you know that they didn't start at 500 pounds? I mean, they could have been half the size they were. They could be very inspiring. I know. They just need it's, like a sign it, or something. Yeah, it's just we're, we're half our size. So oftentimes we make these decisions about where to go in life based on things that we don't even know we're thinking or that we're following. So that's why we, Roland and I, believe so much in coaching and thinking about your goals and your values and what you really believe because oftentimes we believe things just because of influence, not because we have our own thinking and our own awareness of where we want to go with our lives. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. So that's our mini rant about <laughs> um, the, the strong is the new skinny look. Um, and there's nothing wrong with being strong. But being strong, I mean, half the time that the, the, the strong and new skinny crowd, a lot of times the pictures they post, they're still skinny. They're just, they have more muscle. So on the, they're still sometimes have unhealthy levels of body fat. And well, I don't, I, I don't see how, you know, having the body fat levels that my, I would lose my period or that would make me cranky and bitchy, like I get when my body fat gets really low. Or that require me to get up every morning at 5 o'clock and disrupt my social life and I can't have a drink with friends is good for me. I don't want to go for that look. I don't, I don't want to pay the price that it costs. And, um, and I guess that's why I'm, I'm not a fitness model. Yeah. Plus, it's way more fun doing what I do. <laughs> there are plenty of women that are plenty strong I that know. aren't skinny. Well, that... like, look at me. I'm plenty strong, but I'm not skinny. Yeah. And... Well, skinny is just a hard word. I mean, we it, can go off on what tough. skinny means anyway because yeah. it means something different to anybody, just like strong. You know, yeah. what's skinny, what's too skinny. And um, I think we've the, the rambled ta- on long. We have. Just those. the takeaway from this is know why you want what you want, what it involves, and how other people got there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's right. about it. So the second thing we wanted to talk about is um, – it's Sunday night. That's not what we're going to talk about. It's Sunday night, and I have spent the last um, three days at a um, kind of like a workshop slash seminar slash certification, and I'm studying a new manual testing technique, which is amazing. Um, but our no one knows what man- new manual technique means. Sometimes when you work with people, 
Um, well, oftentimes or every time when you work with people, when they come to you for training, um, you have to do a bunch of tests and screens to find out which muscles are working, which muscles aren't working, what movement patterns are good, what movement patterns are not good. And then this is the information that you use to design a program so that as people move, they get stronger, that they get healthier. So this is a way to diagnose yes. and correct um, faulty movement patterns or limitations. Yes. yes. So I've been at this seminar for it's the last It's called neurokinetic days. therapy. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. NKT. NKT. So I've, I've been yeah, there. Yeah, you know me. Yeah. <laughs> You've wanted to say that all day. I know, but she doesn't know what I'm talking about. She doesn't know that song. So I've been there for the last three days and we've been talking about the populations that um, end up with therapists, whether physical therapists or, or massage therapists or movement um, specialists like me. And um, David, our teacher, mentioned that he's seeing more and more um, little kids with uh, hyperkyphosis. And this is when your upper back is really rounded forward. So they're really slouched over, hunched over since iPads came out. So he was still seeing kids when there were computers, but he's seeing way more kids now that there's iPads because they hold them on their lap or they're more hunched over than they would be with a computer where your head, even though it may not be perfectly aligned, is still looking straight ahead. With an iPad or a cell phone, you have to kind of look down. So this is the same thing that we've talked about in the past about... Um the head forward posture. We have mm -hmm. a video we did early on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with the head ramping or the neck, neck ramping. Head ramping. Whatever. Yeah, it's um, a, way, a little corrective there. And this is, uh, I guess it's important because, you know, the earlier these dysfunctions start and the, the, the more dramatic they are like this, the, the more chance there is for long-term suffering and damage. Oh, yeah. And, and once you change the curvature of the upper back, you have affected everything. The cardiovascular system, your uh, respiration, you have affected your digestive system. So now your whole core cannot function properly. All of your extremities are affected. So these kids can end up having all sorts of pain, like knee pain and foot pain and shoulder pain. And I think that 11-year-olds should not be complaining with that. And I just saw an 11-year-old last week who has uh, severe foot pain and they want to do surgery. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can help him with that. Um, so I think this is a good reminder to parents that I think that you're going out somewhere and your kids are bored and you give them your iPad and they play on, on their lap. And, um, and, you, and I think a lot of people think, oh, well, at least they're not home sitting in front of the computer or they're not on the couch watching the television. But not that those things are necessarily better but this isn't any better because no. this is actually putting them in the, the same position that we've warned about with uh, like a laptop screen is worse long term than a desktop screen just mm -hmm. because the, you, you, your head is forced down uh, when you read your cell phone over a long period of time and you're, you have it down towards your, your lap down towards your knees it's causing more problems than if you had it held up in front of you. I'm doing, holding my hands up in front of me, but you guys probably can't see that. So one thing that you could do that's very simple is uh, see if you can get the, the iPad on a little stand and have them use it in front of them. Or even better, if you're at home, you can just make like a little shelf for it at the level of um, their chest. Um, or even slightly higher. It's just really uncomfortable to have your hand up for a long period of time. They have easels. Like it's yeah. like a case that turns into an easel and then you mm. can have it tilted upright mm -hmm. on on the table. And so even if you go to a restaurant, which is a common, I think, see a yeah. lot of people letting their kids use it at restaurants, instead of having it down on their lap, um, just you know, have, have them up the at the table. And uh, just remind your kids and I don't know, it's a good habit to get. It's a good habit for you too. Yeah. Because when you're sitting in a waiting room or if you're you're reading it on your lap all the time, you just notice how your the back of your neck gets tired. And eventually it's not going to get tired anymore because you're stretching out the wrong muscles and shortening the ones in the front. So. Yeah. And a, good, a really good reminder, the weight of your head on your upper body increases five to six times when your head goes in front of you. 
So your spine has to work. Well, it's not necessarily your spine, but the muscles around your spine have to work so much harder. And eventually they tire out and give out and you end up with one of those humps where you now can no longer hold your yourself straight. Yeah. And short term, you're talking about migraines, um, vision problems, and um, long term, you're talking about degenerative uh, nerve damage or disc damage in your neck, things like that. So. And it, it ends up being really expensive. A lot of these things that you will be suffering on from in later life that are really expensive, not only because you pay a lot for surgery or different therapies to fix the problems, um, but also because you have to miss out on work or different things that you'd like to do uh, with your time. Um, it, you can prevent that early on. A lot of the 50-year-olds I'm working with were working on uh, preventing hip replacements. And so they're happy to come and see me a couple of times a week knowing I'm, you know, I'm extending their life. Yeah. So it's it's something to think about. Um, I wanted to share that first because it's so fresh in my mind. And second, because it's a good reminder on how fast technology changes us and how we need to stay on top of things and be mindful of maintaining our physiological integrity while still taking advantage of the technology before, you know, the robots take over, you know, and not because they, you know, they have human-like qualities and they conspired, uh, you know, against us, but because we were too dumb and we just let them win by making us sick. Yeah. So, and the, the, the less expensive things get, you get these, um, it's not just an iPad, it's any sort of these Android tablets or the, uh, what is the Microsoft... The surface. The surface. All of these things, they're pretty heavy. I mean, you think you hold them up and you go, wow, I feel how light this is. But if you hold it up in front of your face for 10 minutes, you know it's heavy. If it's heavy like that, it needs a case that has an easel so it can be propped up so you can use it the right way. Mm-hmm. So those are the words from our sponsor, the Ezo Company. <laughs> I wish, right? Okay. So the next thing we wanted to talk about is a 360-degree turn from this. Um and it's how to use um, aromatherapy or how to use aromatic oils to help your weight loss. Um, and um, this past week, I worked on an article for a website that I write for on um, just different ways to help with weight loss that have nothing to do with exercise or get enough sleep or eat well. You know, those things that your mother tells you. Not one of those things. Um, so I was looking for what other ways are people using that are not traditional to help with weight loss and especially appetite control. And anybody that's tried to lose weight knows that, especially later in, in, in the evening, as willpower goes down, appetite goes up, and you start thinking of um, sweets and other delicious things you want to have, and you want them more than wanting to be in shape. And so you go ahead and eat some. And for some people, it's really hard to say no. Um, I have to say that, you know, that depends on many factors. But there's a percentage of my clients that are tortured by cravings. And, um, you know, they would do, they constantly want me to, to tell them what to do. Is there a supplement for this? Is there a supplement for that? Because it's hard for them. And I feel for them. So what I found is that... Um, in Eastern cultures and in some more non-traditional uh, Western practices, aromatherapy or using aromatic oils and essential oils has been very successfully used for appetite control. So what these therapists are suggesting is that when you have a craving, you need to stimulate a specific zone in your brain that is responsible for feeling energized or satiated or having had enough being satisfied. And that can be done not only with food, but it can be done through smell, which affects the brain. So you can smell something like vanilla oil or ginger oil or mint oil or grapefruit oil and you can feel the cravings disappear right away. Now, they say that you need to spend four to five minutes inhaling these aromatic oils. Four to five or four to five. Four to five. Like four or five minutes. 
um, smelling these aromatic oils. And they suggest a couple of different ways you can do that. So one way is to take a bath that has these aromatic oils, which will be longer than four or five minutes, so that would be good, plus you get a cool bath. Or you could um, have a solution of these aromatic um, essential oils, and you could just smell them. Rub them under your nose? You could, well, there's a couple of ways. You could put some on your wrists and under your nose and behind your ears. How do you know that? Or you can put them in little dark glass jars or bottles where you put a little bit of sea salt and you use that as the thing that holds um, the oils. And you can put some drops in there and then every time you feel a craving come on, you can spend four to five minutes um, putting that under your nose and inhaling deeply and exhaling. Now, while I, why I like this is being aware of your breath also is helpful in um, reducing anxiety and stress. And many times we reach for food because we are in a certain emotional state that we can't control right now. So if you combine breathing with pleasant essential oils with the effect that they have on the brain, then there's a pretty good chance that those cravings may go away. This is also something cheap. You don't have to swallow it. There's no danger in it affecting you badly other than if you don't like those smells. So you Are can, there specific smells? There's specific, specific smells. Things? Well, people who work with aromatherapy say that it's very personal, so you have to experiment and see what oils work for you. But they suggest grapefruit, lemon, mint, vanilla, sandalwood, bergamot, ylang ylang, <laughs> cumin. But what? Ylang ylang. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Cumin, ginger, thyme, and jasmine. Well, and so, is your goal to use? Are you using some sort of smell that reminds you of the thing that sort of satisfy that the, the, how the, the food would have, or is it something that the overwhelms smells, something? The smells themselves have an effect that would be achieved by eating the food. Okay. So you're not looking for something like mint, which is going to mask, no, like Mm-mm. overstimulate your no smellinators. No, no. And if you are craving more of a sweet thing, vanilla really helps. So just smelling that could be enough. And they also say that if you smell essential oils before your biggest meal of the day, you're likely to eat less. Now this is something that I have not done myself. I have tried it, but I haven't said, okay, I'm going to be smelling this vanilla oil or this jasmine oil every day before dinner for a month and see what happens. But it's definitely interesting to try. Now, on a completely different aromatic topic, Roland and I just listened to an episode of uh, Freakonomics. Yeah? Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio, which is awesome. And they had an episode on obesity. And so one of the researchers that was talking about different solutions for obesity was saying that for a long time, his was it his father or his uncle had this idea that if you wanted to be on a diet, everything would be really simple. You would only need a little jar that has puke in it. That's disgusting, by the way. And so every time you got hungry and wanted to eat something, you'd open the jar and you'd smell it and then your desire would go away. So he has known this for many, many years, kind of in the back of his mind, like, wow, what if like smelling something nasty would actually, you know, help to reduce your appetite? So he was able to find a company that has a website and they sell all sorts of disgusting smells. So the website is called Liquid Ass. <laughs> I, it's hilarious. It's hard not to smile. Dot com. And um, it was funny because we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, not the website, the free economics episode. If you listen to it, because they actually, he actually, the researcher introduces the liquid ass smell to all of these other researchers to smell it and see what happens. So I found that to be quite funny. But at the same time, you know, Obesity is a hard problem. It's a hard problem to solve. So if we have to go to smell therapy for some of these things, whether it has to be liquid ass or vanilla, maybe there's something there that we haven't looked at. 
Yeah. I mean, it's worth a shot. Absolutely. It seems counterintuitive to me just because a lot of times when I think some of us get hungry when we have, uh, when we smell something like vanilla or cinnamon. I mean, if you go, if you go through the mall, it's, it's very likely to smell, um, butter from those stupid evil pretzel places or the most evil place of all, Cinnabon. Yeah. But, so, but what, and in fact, I read something in the news. I'll have to see how recent it was that McDonald's, I think it's in Sweden, Switzerland, Switzerland got in trouble because they were, they were piping the smell, their McDonald's smell out into the na- local neighborhood. Like our, they were spraying it. Yeah, spraying it. They were spraying to entice it. people into McDonald's. How do you, liquid McDonald's? Liquid McDonald's. Is that McDonald's. the same as liquid ass? Probably. To me. Yes. I don't know about you. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is where it's not counterintuitive to me if different smells can satisfy the same center in your brain that would be satisfied after a meal, that would work. And vanilla, essential vanilla oil, or essential any oil, doesn't really remind you that much of food because it's just one, it's just one smell. It's not the combination of sugar and cinnamon and butter. You're not aromatherapying with Cinnabon. No, you're aromatherapying with essential pure oils that will not have that. And you know, you really dislike the lavender oil that we have at home. Yeah, she has this jar of lavender oil and it's so... You you just don't like it. It's so strong. Yes. And it just smells like... I mean, I can identify that there's a little some lavender going on there. She also has in Bulgaria is known for its rose its roses, and they put the, this essence of rose petals in a lot of perfumes, right? It's rose oil. Okay, and so she brought me when one time when she came back from Bulgaria a jar of this rose oil, and you can smell that it. it smells like roses, but it actually smells pretty nasty, and like in its condensed, yeah, they're very concentrated condensed. form. It uh, you know it smells like. It's, it's really it's powerful. Bad. It's really powerful. Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting. Would you be willing to do like an aromatherapy experiment before dinner and just breathe for a while some some of these oils that we have and then see what happens and then we can let them know in the next show? Sure. Okay, let's mm-hmm. see what happens. If anything, we'll let you know. Okay. Okay. Um, so our next topic that we wanted to talk about is yeah. um is shortly called paleo bashing. Yeah, that's our sort of our our headline our note in our notes here, paleo bashing. And not everyone knows what the paleo diet is. Um again, like in the the fitness world, we know all these things and like you just talk about them like everyone knows what they are. But the paleo diet is a diet that's fairly popular as far as diets go. And it is one of those things where they look to how our ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors, um, in theory, how they lived in and ate, the things that they had available to them. And in the, what they say in the media, and like what pe- people like Dr. Oz say, is, oh, if a caveman couldn't eat it, then you couldn't eat, you can't eat it. And um, it's sort of, uh, I mean, that's not how it works. And... But it sure makes for a good joke, and it makes it easy to make fun of. And I'll be the first to admit, like that, um, that the idea of the paleo diet is, uh, you know, is sort of funny. And that's why it's become popular too, because it, it has a funny little hook. It's like, hey, you know, eat like a caveman. The the, the Geico caveman on the, uh, you know, so easy a caveman can do it. Cavemen are fun, and it's like a funny, fun thing. Well, and I almost feel like you would have to have a lot of knowledge about biochemistry, about evolution, about all these subjects that one needs to know a lot about in order to buy an idea like the paleo diet if it's called something else. So they kind of had to dumb it down yeah, in order for people to have less resistance to accepting it and in order for it to start working so that they start believing in it. Yeah. 
So I think the, the bottom line here is that there's a lot of, there's a book out recently called Paleo Fantasy where they sort of take the paleo diet to task and say, hey, we don't really know how the paleo man ate. We don't, there was not just one paleo diet because people lived all over the planet. Jungles, desert, forests. And it was a long stretch of time. Yeah. So that even during that period of time, even in the same spot on earth, over a long period of time, people had different diets. <clears throat> it's very true. And they still do. They still do, yeah. And then the other argument is that foods aren't even the same today as they were back then. So even if you wanted to eat exactly like the, the paleo man did back then, you couldn't do it. So therefore, this diet is invalid. But the problem with this whole thing is that that's not really what the diet's about. The diet suggests that we look back at what were the basics of what man is 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 meant to eat and if i if i'm phrasing this wrong you would go ahead and give me a shot give me a, a correction but i think that if you look back what is man meant to eat what is man eaten primarily throughout his history and that was meat fish vegetables tubers tubers nuts, nuts fruit there are other things that they always had available back then. There were, eggs have been available forever, but they probably weren't available in large quantities. Even the, you know, dairy has been available, but it's only been you know a few thousand years that you know people, man started domesticating um, animals and milking them. Before then, you know, you weren't they weren't milking things. <laughs> so while yes, technically there was milk back then, you know, it wasn't really like a big part of our diet. But if you and seeds, they were hard to gather. I mean, they probably ate some seeds, but they were in small amounts. Same with nuts; mm -hmm. they didn't eat nuts in large amounts on a regular basis because they was hard to harvest them. They had to crack them open. They weren't, you know, year round. Same with fruit; things were seasonal. I think we've talked about seasonality and things like that in the past. All these things were available to some degree, but what wasn't really available in a large amount were things like processed grains. You could find grains. Grains have been in existence. They're, they're basically a grass. Grains are a seed of grass. They've been in existence forever, but you can't really, you know, eat them. I mean, it used to be starvation food. And if you had a, let's say you had a field that had wheat growing in it, and you're uh, like a tribesman without any machinery, how much grain are you going to pick or have to pick and what are you going to have to do to it just to make it into into something you can eat? And you're certainly not going to make bread. In order to eat something like that, you're going to have to soak it or boil it. You know, even if you grind it up and make like little patties, you just spent how much time to do this whole field of, of stuff? It's right? tough. It's tough. Yeah. And then there's been a lot of making fun of the paleo diet and i think it was wide open to being made fun of oh yeah and uh from the very beginning i always said gosh i wish it was called something else like mm -hmm. the ancestral diet or you know the western price diet makes you know so much more it's, well it's a name so like yes. you can't really argue it because it doesn't say what it is it just says it's like the atkins diet you can't really argue well the atkins diet oh you know you can't argue what it is based on its name because there's a diet came up that mm -hmm. was in camp. Yeah. But a lot of these criticisms have been addressed in the paleo community and there's amazing researchers and uh, very, very bright minds that are still putting amazing information forward and allowing people to eat healthier and live better despite the fact that there has been criticism and they are aware that, you know, criticism was... Um, you know, do. Yeah, let's give an example. If you've done our 30 days of real food, right, on our website, um, it addresses a lot of the same things. It starts off with basically what a paleo diet would be, and then just like the other paleo diets out there, allows you to reintroduce the foods that are that may or may not be problematic to see how you feel. So it's like a, an elimination diet. eliminates um, grains, wheat, um, I think we give you legumes. the legumes and and dairy. We suggest, we, I think we let you keep dairy in unless you know you're lactose intolerant or something like that. 
And then after 30 days, when, when it's given your system a chance to sort of clear out of any of the, um, the, the negative elements that may have been, you know, at work there in some of these foods, you get a chance to reintroduce them and you see how you feel. And if you, if you feel okay, it's okay for you to eat them. Now, we're not going to suggest that you eat, that you go back to basing your diet like sort of like the food pyramid did on a on a bed of grains not at all but only because grains still are not a very good source of nutrition compared to other foods and they still carry a lot of uh, allergens and potential toxins mm -hmm. so even though you might not be feeling it they have more potential to do to do some harm but at the very least you're not getting a lot of nutrition out of them compared to fruit vegetable uh, dairy. If we go back to our original thing of why the paleo diet is awesome, despite the fact that it's been criticized, I think the biggest thing that it achieves is to differentiate modern food and man-made manufactured food versus natural or what we like to call real food. So as soon as you become aware of that distinction, um, you are already on a better path to health. So it has, there has not been another diet ever since I've been following trends in, in the fitness and nutrition world that has addressed food quality to that high of a standard where nutrition density is high and nutrition density is how much nutrients you get out of a specific food for a specific amount of calories. So say liver is way more nutrient dense than the same amount of calories of bread because there's more minerals, there's more vitamins, there's more essential nutrients in it than there are in bread. So there hasn't been another diet that does that. There hasn't been another diet that emphasizes so many vegetables and fruits and natural starches. We live in today's modern day world, we've talked about this before, the foods that we do have are nutrient poor compared to how they used to be thousands of years mm -hmm. ago. The soil has been eroded and you know, wasted of nutrients by over farming, farming incorrectly. And, um, our meat does not have the same nutritional value that the wild meat used to have thousands of years ago. So you owe it to yourself that when you do eat, you eat foods that have the most nutrition. And that includes maximizing your fruits, vegetables, meat, eggs, um, dairy, um, and, you know, and I'll throw in some nuts and seeds because they have some valuable nutrients as well. The things that, you know, and if you do a little, you know, I'm not going to argue if somebody has, if somebody doesn't have an issue, doesn't have some sort of physical issue with, uh, with like something like legumes, having some of them, but it's, you know, it's just know that all the nutrition that people talk about in magazines and books, how nutritious beans are is before the bean was cooked and before they take into any consideration that these these uh, things are loaded with things like phytates and oxalates, which bind to the nutrients that are in them and whisk them through your body. So in, in essence, that stuff passes through. You get the starch, but a lot of the nutrients just pass through um, and you don't get those. It's very complicated to know how much of the food that you're eating is actually getting absorbed. So as you look on a nutrient label or you check how much nutrition is in something, just know that plant foods in general will provide you with less nutrition than what you see in the reference tables. And animal foods will provide you with most of the nutrition that you see in reference tables. And I spent a large time of my life being vegan and then vegetarian and being malnourished and having joint pain and fatigue and you know, psychological issues and all sorts of stuff just because I believe I was poorly nourished. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, what we're the healthiest people on earth, but I'm definitely healthier eating more animal products and vegetables than, and than eating a, a vegetarian diet. And my clients who have transitioned willingly themselves without me i will never counsel anybody vegetarian to start eating meat i just will never do it i highly respect your choice to eat whatever diet you want to eat i've worked with vegans with vegetarians i will never switch you in any direction but if they choose to by themselves and they do it i have observed 
tremendous changes, especially as far as immunity and resistance to colds and joint pain go, and reproductive things as well. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, being able to reproduce is a big deal. It's our sole purpose biologically on Earth. If you can't do it, if your body's not letting you reproduce, something wrong with you and your nutrition. Yeah. It's very sad. It's very sad. Okay, so on a happier note, thumbs up for the paleo diet because... No matter what you call it. No matter what you call it because and it's the... I should I think it should be called the non-Neolithic diet. <laughs> well, just, just keep in mind that... When you read an article that's, you know, you, there's a, there's a t- popular, t- we'll put some links out there so you can actually see what they are, but, because it's not all bad information, it's good to keep things, uh, it's good to educate yourself, and you're going to learn, so I learned some stuff in this, in this TED Talk that we're going to link, um, even though I don't agree with the conc- all of the conclusions, but just keep in mind that, just because we don't know that there was no, we the paleo community out there, the paleo authors of these paleo books, they've, they, they know that there's not just one paleo diet and that there wasn't just one paleo diet. And they address it in these books. But um, some of the reviewers of some of these books, they haven't realized that. And they're addressing issues that they're complaining about issues now that have been addressed four or five years ago by most of these paleo diet authors. So read your own paleo book if you're interested in some paleo books. We've got some that we can recommend, and I think you're going to be surprised that they don't, um, that a lot of the things that these, uh, the TED Talk presenter and the author of Paleo Fantasy writes about have already been addressed. Yep. They're not really issues. They're just issues that, um, that make good headlines. Yes. And, and hey, good headlines are important because, you know, the world needs to keep turning. Yeah. Okay, um, our last thing that we're going to talk about today is um, something we've mentioned before, and it's uh, standing and walking. Um, you know that Roland and I both use stand-up workstations. And recently, in the um, health and fitness and nutrition community, there's been a trend towards people wanting to get treadmill desks. and um, Which is, there are specific treadmill desks, but they're also... It's like you're taking your treadmill and you buy this sort of desk attachment and add it over the top of the treadmill so you can work on your computer while you're while you're walking walking on the treadmill. In sounds good on paper. Theoretically, <laughs> it sounds like a really good idea. Physiologically and biomechanically, I think it's highly offensive. I will even admit. That I've wanted one of these in the past. I know. I've wanted one where I can generate my own electricity from my computer so it motivates me to walk. Yes. That, <laughs> that, that would be awesome. That would be even better. And if we could... Well, no, I, don't, I don't even want to... You know, okay. I saw this thing when I was a kid about this father that hooked up his children's television to a generator-powered bicycle, a bicycle powering a generator, See? forcing his kids, if they wanted to watch TV, they had to, to keep pedaling. Yeah. It's a, it's a good metaphor for for how calories in calories out yeah. are supposed to work. But don't do that either. Don't do it. So so this is this is the thing. Um we have been moving less and less. And so our substitution for lack of movement is exercise and walking on a treadmill has been a substitution for walking in all of these areas of the world where you know, it's too cold or it's snowing, there's sleet and there's ice. No, there's no and TV outside. There's Yeah, there's all these reasons. Well, it's legitimately cold in some of these places. And I tell my yeah. clients who live in Canada that they can go to the mall and do laps there. I don't care. Please get off the treadmill. So why are treadmills bad, per se? Even the $10,000 treadmill is bad. Um, there is a specific way that the human body moves forward, and that is through forward propulsion. So say that you sat in a boat or a canoe, and you had your pedals, are they called pedals in English? Oars. Oars in the, um, in the water. You'd have to push the oars back behind you, and that motion that you create moves the boat forward. 
So I think everybody's familiar with the fact that if you row forward, your boat's going to go backwards. And then if you row backwards, your boat's going to go forward. So there's something in the back behind you that is causing movement that makes you a, go forward. I think forward. a good analogy, for mm. example, is if you if your car runs out of gas and you have to push your car, right? Okay. Even though you're pushing something, you know, you are, you're, to some degree, you're leaning forward and you're pushing yourself, using your feet to push yourself backwards. This movement happens mm-hmm. when you're walking. When you're running or when you're walking. Yeah, you're pushing yourself. you're pushing something. You're always pushing yourself forward. You're pushing yourself forward away from the ground. Correct. So you're using the ground reaction force to propulse yourself forward. And so in order to do this, your body has this very complicated gait mechanics where it's your foot and your ankle and your calf and your hamstrings and your glutes and the opposite side back and arm that do this gate pattern where you move forward. Now that can only happen if there is ground that's in its place and you are moving on top of something that is not moving under you. Because the treadmill is moving, you can no longer push yourself forward. You have to catch yourself from falling. So instead of the back of your leg propulsing you forward, you have to use the front of your other leg to extend in front of you and to catch yourself. And I think we've all done this when we've tried to run on the treadmill and you start to feel your, maybe you're getting tired and you start to feel it. Oh, well, I think this thing's moving a little too fast for me. And suddenly you're doing like in the cartoons and your legs are just going, 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 yeah. going, going, trying to yep. catch up. When that happens, that's what's happening when you're walking on a time. treadmill the whole time. It's just without the drama. Yeah, it's that's what's happening. You're like a little cartoon <laughs> figure the whole time without the drama. So you're kind of like the road runner. So you, when you do this, just know that you are reversing the whole biomechanics of your body. You're reversing the whole way that your 600 and over 600 muscles are supposed to work together. You're burning calories. I'm not even smart enough. I don't think I'm even smart enough to be able to project the... the scope of the drama that this is because it's not only shortening your hip flexors and overusing your shins and your knees and giving you low back pain and risking disc herniations all the way up to your neck. It's stressing your pelvic floor. It's contributing to pelvic floor disorder, erectile dysfunction. This is for the guys. Digestive issues. I'm not even going to go as far as to say what it means in terms of stress to your system. Well, let me just say this. If you have any interest at all in having a nice, round, perky butt, you should not be walking on, well, that on turns a treadmill your butt off. because it turns your butt off. Because what you use to propel yourself back at that farthest point is your glute. Your glute is pushing you, mm-hmm. is pushing that, that foot backward. And if you're not pushing it backwards, if you're just letting your foot go backward, as the treadmill moves it, moves it, you're not doing anything. No ass for you, except for liquid ass, <laughs> which should be, I, I think it should be a, a, a pathology when we test people, because yes. some people test like they have a liquid ass. So this is probably going to X-rate us or something. The liquid on, ass. <laughs> yes. It's probably going to... liquid ass episode. Give us a... We'll a, put like special... We'll put the like exclamation like points Parental advisory. Like so... I can imagine, you know, if you have like 20 feet of snow, I don't even know how much that is, a lot of snow. If you have a lot of snow and you're really dying to walk, you know, go use your treadmill every now and then. But using a treadmill where you spend the most of your day, which is at your workplace, is the last thing that I want anybody that we love to do. And um, Katie Bowman, who is the founder of the Restorative Exercise Institute and my dear mentor um has an article coming up on treadmills and we'll we'll link it when it's there i will also add that in a very important part of walking is your arm swinging so if mm-hmm. you're typing on a ted on a treadmill or holding a book or reading your phone or your spine is twisting yes. out of its place yes so you're causing yourself long-term motor control or motor damage there you're, you're developing patterns they're going to cause you to walk funny, <laughs> not only later in life, but like when you get off the treadmill. Um, 
I would just tell you that, you know, sometimes we, we see things as, you know, neck pain presenting and migraines presenting because somebody's, you know, opposite to the neck ass is not working or there's a hip flexor that's overworked. You don't want to start being offensive to your physiology because you don't know what's, you don't know what you're turning on or you're turning off. The solution to not having enough movement is not to move in a way that's OS backward. The solution to not having enough movement is to find intelligent ways to include whole body movement throughout your day, which could be doing, you know, stretches or, you know, calisthenics or walking. But you have to do it right because doing something wrong is not better than not doing it at all. Correct. And um, th- that's where, you know, that, that ends my treadmill rant. On a much happier note, I have a nice addition to my stand-up workstation, and that is a cobblestone mat. Now, a cobblestone mat is a fake, very sad way of uh, <laughs> imitating a reflexology park in China. But it's in our living room in Orange County, so how bad could it be? So in China, there's these parks that are covered in cobbles, tiny little cobbles that people take their shoes off and they walk around in them, and they stimulate different points on their feet. If you know anything about reflexology or you've had that done, the feet are very, very sensitive and they're linked to the health of your whole body. Now, even if you don't believe that there is something that heals your liver on the bottom of your foot, just know that your feet have 200,000 points through which they receive information from the outside world. So they're very much like the whiskers on a cat. So you, you get a lot of information with your feet. So when your feet are confined to shoes all day, then you lose a lot of that sensitivity, but you also lose a lot of the movement between uh, the different bones and, and joints in the feet. So one thing that I do as a healthy foot specialist is I teach people to roll their feet on a tennis ball, and you've probably done that, and it feels really good. So what that does is it helps to break up... Um, the connections between these bones that are very static from being in shoes all day. Well, the next step up would be to walk on some sort of an uneven surface because you step differently every time and different parts of your foot get moved differently. And you get more innervation and you get a healthier, better moving foot. So the cobblestone mat is sort of a imitation of a natural surface where you could walk on it. It's long enough to do a few steps back and forth. And they did a study, University of Oregon did a study a couple of uh, years ago comparing a program where they had these seniors either just walk on ground or they would walk on these cobblestone mats barefoot. And the results were astonishing. For the same amount of time that they were walking, just like the group that was walking on ground, the group that was walking on cobblestones had improvements in blood pressure, coordination, their mental tests were better, their cholesterol was lower. So apparently the stimulation of the foot does something in addition to the benefits of walking, which is really cool. What it does for me at the stand-up station where I just stand and work is it reminds me to move my feet because these cobbles, they kind of poke you in a specific place. They're smooth, round pebbles. Mm Mm-hmm. But they're not comfortable. They're not comfortable at all. So some of them are more more spiky than others. So I'm, I move around more. And that's a good reminder to change foot position. So I have really enjoyed the cobblestone mat. Um, we'll put a, we have it. Um, I believe we'll have it in our Amazon store. So you can just go and check it out there. Yeah, I think this is just a really good reminder. We've talked about this before when we talked about the stand-up desks. That the most... And also about sitting versus standing and just moving around. That mm-hmm. it's more, the perfect thing would be if you can walk a lot during your day. That would be awesome. Right? But not all of us can. A lot of us are, you know, chained to a desk. Um, or we drive in cars a lot. The, so the important thing to note is that the treadmill desk is not the solution. But you're misunderstanding what the problem is. We're really um, 
I think people are getting confused with, oh, I look how many calories on you. And I think they're thinking, well, I need to walk 10,000 steps a day because it's all the calories. But it's really, it's not just about the calories. It's the movement and the proper movement in and of itself. So stand-up desk, but also sit down to work. Sit down on the floor to work. You can sit on a BOSU, BOSU not a BOSU ball, a Swiss ball to work. Um, you can sit on a stool that doesn't have a back. You can sit on different height stools, an adjustable chair. And don't just get it into the perfect position for you and then leave it there forever. Move it around a little bit every day or a couple times a day. Get up, set a reminder on your computer. Get up and walk around um, once an hour. And maybe every half an hour, just get up and, and move. Just like you don't have to move out of your cubicle or away from your desk, but get up and move through, move your arms through the range of motion. Um, keep a, a tennis ball on the floor underneath your desk. Roll your, take your shoes off and put your foot around. Um, get a half dome, and when you're standing, um, you know, stretch your calves and alternate between the two and a cobblestone mat or something like different heights and different, just, you know, stand on different surfaces, take your shoes off, uh, take your socks off and, uh, and also walk around barefoot outside too, whenever you can, as long as it's, you know, watch out for the broken glass, but, you know, walk around as much barefoot as you can, um, stretch your toes do all sorts of things and just move your whole body. It's it's um, it's it's not always about walking. Is the you know not always just about walking. Mm-hmm. It's about getting movement and not being in one particular position for a long period of time. And if you're interested in more information on the feet and foot health in general, um, there is a book in our Amazon store called Every Woman's Guide to Foot Pain. Let that not be. Um, fooling you if you're a dude just take it and read it it's amazing it's great for both sexes because our feet are the same just no nail polish on most dudes and um and lower heels and lower slightly lower heels if you would like to do more hands-on stuff i would love to uh do a live session and we can do google hangout um just a, a bunch of us can get together and work a little bit more on foot mobility. I can show some cool exercises you can do. We can learn a little bit more about minimal shoes. And in fact, um, I'm preparing right now for my presentation at the Fitness Summit in May, where I'm going to talk about um, transition to minimal footwear. So maybe that's something that I can share on the next podcast with you. Yeah, in well. the uh, in the fitness gym owners and uh, personal trainers love to say when tell their clients to take off their shoes for their training as soon as they come in and they mean well but it's not always as simple if somebody's been if you live in a culture where you're you've been trapped in shoes for most of your life um, the last thing you need is to take off your shoes and put something heavy on your back so be careful with that and if you're a personal trainer um be careful of that as well. And, uh, you know, you can drop us a line and we can give you some more information. So, um, and there's a reminder, it's a couple of weeks away from the fitness summit. Thanks for saying that. And, um, maybe we can see you. It's in uh, Kansas city. It's a great event for fitness enthusiasts and, uh, trainers alike. And, uh, Gali and I are both, uh, both presenting. Yep. I'll look forward to seeing you there. And if not, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks everybody. Have a good night. And thank you for listening.